there's nothing that we could do or that could deserve or merit hell, could there? Are you guys letting this sink in? I'm, I'm speaking for myself. I want this to sink into me. Until hell is really believed and is anguished over and is made and communicated to be the terrible, eternal calamity that it is. It is the ultimate calamity. There's, there's no turning back. There's no remedy. There's no second chance. There's no way to make amends because now you realize that what you had spurned in those who had preached to you and witnessed to you is in fact true. And you can't undo the death of those four girls or those 14 students or whatever it is. It, it doesn't require mass slaughter to justify hell. Just being a man in the world, indifferent to God, and full of lies and untruth and um, conduct contrary to God's requirement that we should be holy as he, hold, as he is holy, is sufficient qualification. Well, this is a real tough one, because uh, is that our God? It sounds so vindictive, so... Uh, unrelieved surely there's got to be a little footnote a little something by which God can still be vindicated he can't be that unjust he can't be that demanding he can't be that absolute in the in determining and the eternal destiny of millions for which there's no remedy who will be in eternal torment of darkness or fire to believe that and to believe that that is foundational to the understanding of the Christian faith is either something terribly wrong or something terribly right. It seems that the great revivals in America, the early 18th century, and I've got a message from Jonathan Edwards here, believed in hell and spoke of it so persuasively as Finney did later that people clutched the pillars of the church, they could feel the heat coming through the floor, the flames of hell were already scorching the soles of their feet. They, they foamed at the mouth, they fell, and they were carried uh, out, or they were brought to a anxious, what they call that, the anxious bench, where people would then wrestle with their souls over these issues, and they didn't expect you to come through the same night. You may have gone home, anguishing in your soul about your eternal condition, and it may have taken two or three days before there was a final breakthrough. But when it came, people were not just merely saved, they were converted. Entire communities were converted. The saloons were emptied, the jails were emptied. There was a sweep of God in power when men came pronouncing the reality of eternal judgment and hell without compromise or equivocation. Because Finney sent his prayer man into those communities two to three weeks in advance of his coming. So that prayer, uh, intercession of the deepest kind, would precede his speaking. But the results were remarkable. We have not seen anything like that since that time. Because we're not preaching anything like that since that time.
So what Psalm 73 seems to indicate is that though a psalmist surely is as well informed as any of us of the issues of eternity, of judgment and reward, he did not understand them sufficiently. He didn't yet understand them existentially in his deeps because he was vexed in his soul. He was torn because he could not reconcile a moral God with conditions that prevail in this life by which the wicked get away with murder daily, even insulting God verbally, and even saying, where is God? While the righteous who, who want to serve God and walk in the way, they are, them, they are chastened daily and, 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 and are, are beset with difficulties and problems, whereas the evil are having a field day. So long as that prevails, and you have to ask the question, where is God? There's no talking of any kind of morality. And to, and to void the word morality is to lose the entire game. Because if we grow up without a moral sense and the imperative importance of having a moral sensitivity, of being moral human beings, we're finished saints. The issue of what is moral is the issue of what is human. And I'm saying, if God can be dismissed as himself lacking a moral universe, what basis is there for morality at all? And you know what the answer is? What makes this universe moral? Is not that men get away in this lifetime with murder, but that in the life to come after, they get their just and due reward. That is to say, if there was no eternal judgment, this whole present life would be without reason and men can get away with murder, literally, if there's no fear of the consequence in the life to come. And I'm believing that God in his wisdom has designed hell and created it, not just as the, uh, for what people will suffer in, in the life to come, but that it should be presently considered, taken into our present consideration, that we should walk in fear and trepidation and caution, knowing that a misstep and a, and a series of action can bring us into that eternal state. God intended the consideration of hell to be the most tempering, sane factor for living right, righteously in this life. And because it has not been for us a real consideration, we're living sloppily, shallowly, carnally, and the, and the rest. How does a minister, whether he's black or white, allow himself a fornication with numbers of women and girls within his own congregation as if it's his right? I mentioned this in Staten Island on my way through here, and a very precious black brother who was a minister and has been concerned for this said, Artie, you need to understand, in black history, men have been so deprived of their masculinity, their identity as men, 
They were just merchandise. Men could be separated from their wives and their children and sold to one owner, and the wives and children can go to another. And so there's, there are many factors that explain why it is in the insecurity and the lack of true identity of oneself as a man. There's a drivenness to prove it and to demonstrate it sexually by having these surreptitious supplementary relationships that can be justified, is what he's telling me. You understand what I'm saying? Here's what I'm saying. I don't care. I mean, I, I care. I understand history. I'm a history teacher. I understand that generations can be affected for, for many generations to come by the ugly things of the past. Slavery and the injustice of it, the mistreatment of it, and the way that men were reduced, I can understand that there'd be a fact psychologically by which a man would need to assert himself sexually to prove his masculinity as a reflection of that history. Except that we're not at liberty to make that our excuse. We're not at liberty to cite history to justify our present weakness or conduct. Yes, you may have every reason to have an affair because of the of the past, but a righteous God says that that's evil. And for you to conduct yourself in it is to make yourself a candidate for the loss of your salvation and for an eternal torment of suffering and judgment. Got the idea? God has given us a counterbalancing factor in the calamity of eternal judgment that compensates or puts uh, uh, at a distance any justification that we could find for self-indulgence, self-gratification, lust, dishonesty, evil, lies, wickedness, and death. But our age finds reasons that even this man who killed these four girls, well, he lost a baby nine years ago, and he's never fully recovered how, by the sudden removal of that child that was born to them. And even in his early history, he himself may have been sexually, what do they call it, uh, offended. Well, he himself indulged. So already the world is finding social and psychological explanations to mitigate the evil and make it a non-evil for which he's not responsible. How could he help it? And God is saying, I don't care what your sociology is. I don't care what your history is. You need to know that the soul that sins, it shall die. That there's, there's a, a death that comes to every man, and then the judgment. No soul shall be absolved from facing the judge and paying eternally the consequence of sin. And this man did not see it until he went into the sanctuary. 
So long as he was content to be merely doctrinally correct, he didn't see it and he anguished. But his anguish drove him into the sanctuary. That is to say, to find the answer of God. And you know what he found? Then I understood in verse 17, their end. I took the yellow marker and I put their end in yellow. You can underline it and put an asterisk. Unless we understand the end, we don't understand at all. Dear saints, the church has been deprived of its understanding of the full faith and message of God for which there is an end. But it's not an end as termination or obliteration. It's an end of judgment that is eternal and does not cease in its burnings and in its torment. That's the end. The end is an eternal continuation of your consciousness suffering the just reward of the evil that you allowed yourself in this life. And now is find it's too late to remedy. How many people would think twice before considering sexually molesting Amish girls or killing them if they, if they knew that merely to put a bullet in your own brain does not end anything? You'll find yourself, dear brother, in that moment in hell with a full consciousness of who you are and what you have done and what you are suffering now in torment even before the day of judgment in which you'll be united with your body and stand before the judge and receive an eternal judgment of which your present hell is only the preliminary. Let's turn to Luke. I think it's 16. It's called a parable. I didn't tell you what happened at the University of Illinois when the guy asked me that question. You believe in hell, cats? Come on, you're a university graduate yourself. You're a man in your right mind. Hell is an embarrassment. Hell is for simpletons. Hell is for manipulating the masses in fear. Surely a man as erudite as yourself could not, could not really ever give credibility to such a notion as hell. So what is your message then? And what is the gospel predicated upon judgment by which we are saved by the blood of Jesus rendered at the cross? See, the cross means nothing, and salvation is nothing if there's not a hell from which we're to be saved. So that Paul in Thessalonians says to the new converts, I praise God that when you heard the word of God from me, you received it for what it was. Not the word of man, but the word of God, which performs a work in them that believe, that turn you from your idols to serve the living God, and to wait for his Son, who comes from heaven, and will save you from the wrath to come. These Thessalonians believed in a salvation that would save them not only presently, but eternally from the wrath to come. Wrath means 
the anger of God, the righteous anger of God, that when His face, when He comes as judge, in the wrath of the Lamb, as it is described in Revelation, men who had mocked Him and thought nothing of Him look for places in the rocks to hide and crevices and cracks that would save them from having to see the face of the wrath of God in Jesus. It's a wrath that is not a last moment's impetuous irritation. His wrath is not like our little anger. His wrath is a deep, deep thing that has been simmering in his eternal depths through all of the history of mankind, watching and observing the conduct, the attitudes, the speech of millions that are contrary to him and to his holiness. And there comes a day in which he will express that wrath in judgment. He'll bring it into the earth when he comes, and men who are found sinners will suffer that wrath eternally if they are not saved by the blood of the Lamb that saves them from the wrath to come. You know, if we don't believe that, saints, we're not saved enough. We're saved, what shall I say, superficially. But we need to be saved from the wrath to come. Because we know that wrath is fearful. And the consequence of that wrath is immeasurable. And it's a justified anger. It's not God on some petty trip. He's ventilating and expressing his righteous indignation in a world that has blasphemed against him and sinned horribly, taken its liberties in lust and blood and death and violence, as if there was no price to pay in the life to come, as if this life was everything and you can get away with it. So if he did not come to bring an eternal judgment, where is there any basis for morality? And so, in Luke 16, verse 19, there was a certain rich man clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. This sounds like the same kind of people that uh, Asaph was describing in Psalm 73. Living it up, having a ball, no need, best of all worlds. And in contrast, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It doesn't say that he ever received any crumbs or any kind of consideration from the rich man. Very likely, he was completely dismissed. And therefore, he forsook all righteousness in, in giving out of his abundance to alleviate the distress of one as pitiful as Lazarus. And that's not just a moment's inconsideration. That's the statement of all of his years, of all of his life. We can almost surmise he was rich because that's the way he lived. 
he did not give away of his substance to the poor. He was indifferent. And you know that the poor are poor for the purposes of God? The poor are poor as a test for the righteousness of mankind to whose midst they are placed. And it's interesting that in the last, in the first judgment, when the Lord comes as king, goats, is over the question, what have you done for the least of these, my brethren? So there's a remarkable corollary here in the comparison of these two men, the wealthy man who lacks nothing and the poor beggar who could not even obtain crumbs. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flames. You know, dear saints, you don't have to be a Ph.D. or a, a Bible scholar just to come to certain fundamental reckonings on the basis of this text, which Jesus himself is citing. And that not the least of the basic understandings is that though this man died, his consciousness was not obliterated. It did not mean the end of himself as an entity any more than it meant that for the man who blew his brains out after killing those four Amish girls. Death does not end. Death only precipitates the being cast into the place of eternal judgment instantly. For the moment he died and he was buried, he was aware that he was in torment, he was in hell, and was able to see Lazarus in a much, more, a much better place, and even to request, could Lazarus be sent just to dip his finger in water and to touch my tongue? Because this heat and this burning is an, an anguish and an agony and a torment beyond all consideration. You know, I've never preached this text before. But maybe it's time and to ask, is the Lord himself cites this. The Lord is giving this as an example. Would he, would he speak these words lightly if, they were not, if there was not corresponding truth? Would he exaggerate just to create fear? Would he say that there's torment when there is no torment in hell? So you know what my answer was to that student? Cats, do you believe in hell? What, were, what was I, four or five years old in the Lord? I don't think I ever seriously ever considered the question. I didn't have a little alphabetical book with uh, I can turn to H and see what it says about hell and be saved from this predicament. I can only trust God who brought me to this place and knew that everything would depend on my answer to that man. If, I, if the Lord failed to give an answer to that man over the question of hell... No matter, no meetings that would follow, 
in philosophy classes, in Jewish fraternity houses, in, in any public place, and I was in every place, would, would succeed. That meeting that in which this man stumbled in, in one of the classrooms, a Vietnamese veteran crocked out on drugs and fell to the floor as I was speaking, that when I finished and I get, opened up for questions, the, 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 the students began to attack me, and this man got to his feet and he said, What are you guys doing? He says, can't you see that God is in this place? And he got saved. And I just saw him in Switzerland only weeks or months ago. He said, oh, it's 31 years from the day that I stumbled into that room at the University of Illinois, crocked out on drugs, and heard you speak under the anointing of God and got saved. That man today is at the highest echelons of youth with a mission. He's a professor. He's a PhD. He's, he's the head of their international university. He's the head of their French work in the world. He's the one who arranged for the meetings at Lausanne, Switzerland, where I would speak on the subject of apostolic foundations, which book is available because he opened the door for that speaking. Because at the University of Illinois, at a certain moment, he came stumbling into a room in which the power of God on me was so great that he fell to the floor and contradicted these students who wanted to jump me. And it all went back to the answer, do you believe in Hellcats? Of course I believe in hell. I like I believe in heaven. You know, I believe in the faith, you know, but there's believing and believing. And so I opened my mouth, and so far as I can reconstruct what I said, this is what came out of me. I said, you dear... Man, I think I called him that. He was an ups, uh, smart Alec, snot nose, wanting to ridicule me and end something before it began. I said, you know, no one has spoken more prolifically on hell than Jesus himself. You know, that's true. You'll find no one in the prophets or in the New Testament or even Paul speaking more prolifically about hell than Jesus himself. And what we're considering in Luke 16 is a statement from Jesus. And I said, he said that we should be held accountable for every idle word we speak. And he himself never spoke an idle word. Therefore, I would commend to you to take seriously his speaking of hell as an eternal torment and a fire that will not be quenched, lest you find yourself more soon than you know, facing its prospect. Something like that. It was like, boom, a blast from God, where I watched this guy just shrivel and get and blown out of the room. And then the Lord went on. So I'm reminded of it, being reminded of that tonight with this subject of hell. This guy put his finger on the critical question. If we don't believe in hell, and there's not a hell to believe in, we're robbed of the appropriate fear that is, a, that is becoming to the church as the church. And the most serious omission in the church worldwide, as I have the privilege to observe it in my travels, is this one thing, the absence of the fear of God. That ministers can fornicate, 
take liberties, come unprepared, speak just to, to play upon the emotional strings that they know that they can affect because they're, they're smart operators, have no concern for the Word of God or seeing to the growth or the maturity of, the, of their flock, but just getting by so that they can support the lifestyle that they enjoy and appreciate by playing the game. There's no fear in such men because there's no fear of the eternal consequence of their disobedience to God and their failure to be serious servants in the high calling of God in which we're told, is it in Hebrews, let not many of you be teachers of the word, for teachers of the word come under a double judgment. Fear needs to be restored to the church. And it will not be restored until we reckon on the, the foundational fear itself, the fear of eternal hell as torment, which this rich man is now experiencing. And what answer does he get about send Lazarus that he might touch my tongue? But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received the good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. You got your yellow marker? Mark the word fixed. Fixed is finality. Fixed is absoluteness. Fixed means no further recall, no opportunity to amend or alter the condition that has come. It is fixed, permanent, enduring, eternal. If we really believe this, we ought to be pleading with men. We ought to be pleading with youth, lest they be cut off in their youth and be plunged into eternity without remedy because it is fixed. So that they which pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us and we come from thence. There's no two-way traffic here. It's all over, buddy. We can't send anybody to you. You can't send anybody to us. There's a, there is a abyss. There's something fixed by which there's no possibility ever again of communing between these two spheres. You're fixed in hell. He's fixed in heaven. And, he, and there's nothing that can be sent to you. And there's no relief that can come to you. This is your eternal state. You lived it up in this world. You enjoyed luxury. You let this beggar come to your gate. You couldn't even find them a crumb because you were unrighteous, because you had no consideration for God, because you did not even understand that this beggar was at your gate because of God. He was not an accident. He was, a, he was someone that God allowed to suffer poverty and to be a beggar, to test you, to save you if, if you could yet recognize it from an eternal fate of an anguish beyond all description. If you had recognized God was trying to speak to you and show you your ungodliness and your unrighteousness by which you gathered for yourself remarkable wealth and lived high on the hog 
and had every advantage while you let this guy to wither and others like him at your very doorstep. And you spurned God's attempt to bring you to conviction about righteousness because the purpose of this life on earth is not to acquire immeasurable wealth and a soft and comfortable lifestyle of luxury. The purpose of this life is to fit yourself for eternity. Is to walk righteously with God and to know Him and to believe His judgments and His laws and to serve Him and to walk in the way everlastingly and receive the reward of another kind. Too late, it's fixed. And so the this rich man said, I pray thee therefore in verse 27, Father, that you would send him to my father's house for five brothers, that he might testify unto them that they also, that they, lest they also come unto this place. Torment. They're candidates for hell. Just the, the same kind as I myself am. Send a warning. Save them from this torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be, be persuaded the one rose from the dead. You'll soon have company. Your five brothers will join you, but there'll be no comfort in that. You'll all suffer the same affliction. You'll be under the same torment, under the relentless heat, which is described as fire. And someone in one of my recent readings says, it doesn't mean that it's fire as we know it in the earthly realm. It may be fire of an entirely other kind because they're not consumed by it, but they experience the heat and the torment of it. Frankly, dear church, I have to strain to believe that God himself has established this. That the God who is the God of mercy and grace and kindness can allow for this eternal thing. And that he himself has established it as being altogether just and righteous. That those who suffer it have deserved this penalty. They have forsaken every warning. They have not, re they have not been willing to receive testimony. They have spurned people who have spoken to them about the Lord. They would not hear. They would not consider. And now, when the time came and their iniquity was full, boom. They find themselves right at the moment of death in hell, conscious, aware of who they are and where they are, and suffering torment. So on that basis, I have to believe that this milkman who shot up those Amish girls and killed himself in that moment, wake to find out he's not really dead. He's physically dead, humanly speaking, in the world, but he's eternally and consciously alive, and he's in hell right now in torment, even before the judgment that will be pronounced upon him eternally. And it's fixed. If the poor sap knew it, even suspected it, would he have gone ahead to the hardware store to buy the Vaseline, the lubrication, I don't know what he was going to do with it, 
evidently sexually molest these girls and the various other things. He planned and plotted this entire thing without a thought of what the consequence would be eternally. Didn't he know that when he let those te- the teacher out and the other adults and the male students, that's only a matter of time before the police would come? And the moment that they came, he shot up those kids and, and killed himself thinking, it's over. But dear saints, we need to know, it's not over when it's over. And because we don't believe that, deeply believe that, we, we're not able to warn men, men. Paul said, knowing the fear of God, I persuade men. Well, even our own ministers are not persuaded and are taking liberties, which if they continue in it, you know what their eternal place will be? One of my concerns addressing the black church is who are you cats to be such a spokesman and to address that church? Won't they suspect that you're just whitey and you're just speaking out of your white preference and your own culture and your own background? Yes, there's that risk. If that the Lord would give me the give the grace to show that art is not speaking out of his own racial identity. He's not speaking out of his own cultural background. He's speaking out of a transcendent place in God that's beyond the issue of race and beyond the issue of culture. And now I've got to believe tonight that that's true for what I'm speaking here. That this is not a man just being petulant and celebrating hell because he wants these guys who blow up these Amish girls to get what they deserve. But that there's something grievously wanting in the church because we've not been vexed over the issue of the disparity that the rich are having a ball and the poor are being vexed and chastened. Where's God's justice if there's not an eternal place by which Whatever is lacking in this life and judgment is made up there. Believest thou this, that you can get away with murder in this life? But oh, 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 when the end comes, that is fixed. And a just and righteous God will bring to recall every episode, every indulgence, Every sin, every lust, every disregard of himself in his way by which you have had a ball and trafficked and, and got away with it thinking that there's no God even to see or to observe, let alone to take note or measure. But in eternity, in what follows this life that comes after, for which this life is only a moment there, justice and righteousness will be served to the letter. So, this is the only way I knew to begin tonight. Just join with me in your spirit. Lord, what kind of a church are we? We're not able to persuade men because we ourselves do not know the fear of God. We've been getting away with murder. We do not live as if we're being seen, observed, as if you're keeping books, that one day we'll have to look straight into your face and be without excuse, 
that we can't talk about, well, we black men have certain uh, uh, justification because in the early days of slavery, and even till now, we have been denied the full expression of our masculinity, and now we feel that we were right and free. And ta- uh, you just take one look at his face. Look into the face of the judge and see his scars that he bore at the cross, and you won't even begin to make an excuse of self-justification, for there is none. We're all accountable before God, and we can't find justification for evil and wickedness on the basis of the past, or that we were deprived, or that when we we were kids, we were children, we, we were molested, or we lacked this or we lacked that. There is no excuse. We're responsible before God. He would have given us every grace to live righteously before Him. For He said to Abraham, Walk thou before me, and be thou perfect, for I am God Almighty. And that's His statement to every son and daughter of Abraham. Walk before me, not the world, not its style. Be perfect. And it's going to be hard, but I'm God Almighty. I'll give you every grace that when I come in the day of my appearing, you'll not be ashamed. You'll be able to face me, not with fear. You won't look for cracks in the rock to hide. You'll be be looking forward to seeing me. You're longing for my appearing, for you look to receive a reward and not a penalty. So, my God... Shall the church ever be the church until these foundational things are restored? Come, my God, and light a fire within us. Bring your fear. Show us how lopsided we have been. We've not given the things that are eternal the kind of consideration that they deserve, and we've given to this life, which is only a momentary, a whisper, a vapor, an undue attention. So we bless you, Lord. We're not asking that the black church should just be lifted up a notch and be saved from the terrible horror of men who fornicate and take liberties. We're asking that the black church should be the example for all the church of America of what a righteous people are, that do not look upon their condition or their race or the injustices which they have suffered and continue to suffer as any kind of justification for acting in a way contrary to God. Oh, my God, Lord, bless us. Restore the things that have been neglected. Use this beginning as you will. We thank you and praise you. If we have heard your heart tonight, continue with us, my God. So much as is in your heart to do, and we thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen.